0: Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today.
1: I'm Dr Louisa Ashley, Head of Subject at Leeds Law School and I'm joined by some of my colleagues for Wonderful Women. We'll be talking about their diverse research discussing perspectives on vulnerability and sexual assault, finding out about problem solving courts and the meaning of therapeutic jurisprudence, We'll learn of how the discovery of a photograph of one woman buried in war crimes archives set the agenda for years of subsequent research, and we'll be plunging the depths of the ocean as we explore the ramifications of unregulated fishing. So, why why these four women? Well, whilst they might have diverse research interests, they all share the success of having had a book recently published or one in the pipeline. So congratulations, everyone. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. So before we begin, can I just check that the tea bag of women's tea that I posted out to each of you has found its way to you all?
2: It did. It It has has indeed.
1: Yes, in my old random airmail. (laughs) airmail Yes. (laughs) Lovely. Everyone is now showing me their, their women's tea. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing the messages on those tea bags later. And before we get to that, I'm just going to introduce each of you. So I have with me Dr. Saoirse McCormack.
2: Hello. How are Hello, Yeah,
1: Thanks I'm good. It's good to have you here. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've all been together in yeah. the same actual space, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, sick of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we've all got lockdown fatigue. And um, so, Sorsha, you've recently secured a book deal with Routledge. Well done, that's fantastic. And your book is going to be called Vulnerability and Sexual Assault Law The Inadequacy of the Autonomy Based Approach. So, you'll be telling us more about that, I'm sure, when we have a little chat shortly. And this is based upon Sorsha's PhD thesis. Sorsha joined Leeds Law School as a lecturer in 2018. Irish born and bred after qualifying as a barrister in 2013, Sorsha moved to England to do a PhD at Durham University. Her PhD research interests include sexual offences and feminist legal theory. And before joining us here at Leeds Law School, Saoirse worked as a research assistant at the University of Leeds. And while she was there, she met influential feminist legal theorists who helped her shape her research focus. Saoirse is motivated to challenge the treatment of sexual assault complainants and to to challenge societal perspectives and expectations placed on women to avoid harm. So thank you, Saoirse, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Welcome also to Dr. Mercedes Rosello. Hello. Hi, Mercedes. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. Uh, Now, Mercedes, you've got a book that's due out later this year. That's right, isn't it? That
3: is correct, yes.
1: Yeah, and it's called Between Effectiveness and Legitimacy, Unregulated Fishing as a State Accountability Paradigm. And that's going to be published by Brill, I believe that is correct yes yeah and, and I'm at, so are you in the process of just reviewing the final proofs is that right
3: um yes i well i've actually just received the first set of proofs. so um yes i'm in the process of doing that now it's very exciting right.
1: Lovely, so that should be out very soon. Now, Mercedes worked as a City of London solicitor for a decade before she decided to take some time out, during which she travelled through South and Central America and trained as a scuba diver. Upon her return to the UK, Mercedes volunteered with and was then later employed by an organisation in the third sector. This was a charity dedicated to matters involving ocean protection, especially illegal fishing prevention and control. And I'm right, Mercedes, that this it was this work that reignited your passion
3: for the law. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Yes.
1: Yeah and then you went on to do a research masters at Queen Mary University in London and then a PhD at the University of Hull researching international and EU fisheries law and there's something that you said Mercedes that really sort of caught my imagination and you said that the ocean gives but also defies human knowledge and safety and challenges our collective
3: ability to make law. Yes That that is right. Yes, Uh, it is. It is a space that's full of mystery and full of contradictions. But precisely for that reason, it is fascinating. Um, And yes, I I never tire of researching ocean-related law. Fantastic. We're going to look forward
1: to hearing more all about that. And now to my third colleague, who's with us today, uh, Dr. Anna. Hello
4: Anna. Hi Louisa. Have I said your surname correct? You have, thank you very much. I'm sure Agatha could give us a nice uh, pronunciation.
1: I know, I'm, actually I've just thought Agatha's not given me uh, a prime in how to say her surname, so we'll, get, we'll, we'll come across that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> So Anna you're a senior lecturer here in the law school and you joined us after four years of teaching and research at Sheffield Hallam University and your research focuses on justice innovation including therapeutic jurisprudence and problem-solving courts.
4: That's right, yeah.
1: Yeah and you're going to be telling me exactly what that means in a bit aren't you? Yes I am. Good. Good. Now, Anna is one of the two founders of the UK chapter for therapeutic jurisprudence and is also a trustee and a member of the advisory board for the International Society of Therapeutic Jurisprudence. So in these roles, Anna, you're at the forefront of international and national decision making and discussions in these areas, which is very exciting. And I believe that you're currently undertaking some research for the Ministry of Justice.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So, again, that will be looking at problem solving courts and TJ, um, which we commonly abbreviate <laughs> it to because it's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, but, yes, that's right.
1: Okay, great. And linking to this, you're part of a specialist working group. And that's uh, founded by the UK Justice Innovation Centre. And you're working very closely with key personnel in establishing these new problem solving courts. And you have also got a book that's recently been published and has sold out I believe on certain (laughs) platforms in fact I checked last night and apparently stocks are currently running quite low so it's clearly very popular (laughs) and so this was published by Routledge and it's called Problem Solving Courts Criminal Justice and the International Gold Standard reframing the English and Welsh Drug Courts and I believe your book is it promises to be high impact because you're proposing a new model in there for the setting up of the problem solving course is that right? That's
4: right yeah that's right I'll go on to talk about that um, in just a few minutes. (laughs) Lovely
1: thank you great well it's good to have you with us Anna and last but not least we have Dr Agata Fizilkowski Kowski so this is a bit where I'm suddenly thinking we haven't discussed this have we?
5: It's okay it's um if you go Chicago speak it's Fijialski. Yeah. Otherwise it's Fialkowski. So it's perfect. Ah, Fialkowski.
1: Okay, well, Agatha.
5: <laughs> welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just Agatha. Yes, <laughs> <Just>
1: Agatha. <laughs> Good to have you here. So Agatha, you're originally from Chicago and you joined the law school in 2019. And your research is on Central and Eastern Europe. And I believe that began when you were a Fulbright scholar in Poland.
5: Yep, that's right. Um, Yeah, I spent two years in Warsaw as a Fulbright scholar.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And your writing is broadly in the area of transitional justice, and Agatha adopts what, what she's described as an indisputable interdisciplinary approach, which I'm hoping you're going to tell us more about. So at the moment, Agatha's is working on her next monograph, which is a book titled, Law, Visual Culture and the Show Trial. And at the heart of Agatha's research is archival work. And it was one day in 2018, Agatha, I think, whilst you were buried in the archives at the Institute of National Remembrance in Warsaw, that you Mm -hmm. came across a photograph that had been taken in the immediate post-World War II period. Mm. Uh, And this was of a renowned Polish writer who was, the photograph was of this writer in court, is that right?
5: That's correct, yeah. It was um, a photograph I stumbled upon of um, Zofia Nelkowska, and uh, she, you know, was a prolific writer. And um, I later learned that um, this photograph of her in court, amongst other lawyers, was part of her work um, in the immediate immediate post World War II period to gather evidence for war crimes trials. It was um, it was a it was a nice find. It was a very rewarding find.
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to stay with you, Agatha, and just ask you a few questions about about your research really before I then move around the virtual room okay so I believe that it was this photograph that really sort of sparked your interest and you're now investigating the life accounts of the members of the legal team that were involved in gathering the evidence really that, that fed into the war crimes trials in Poland is that
5: is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, um, we don't know that much, actually, uh, about this Polish-Jewish legal team and um, what they did over a remarkable two-year period from 1946 to 1948. So this is running in parallel with Nuremberg, um, preparing and bringing the um, Uh, you know, the judicial response to uh, German crimes committed on Polish soil. And um, I, again, uh, came across uh, boxes of photographs of these individuals. And I felt that the more I learned, the more that their life accounts told us a lot about legal principles that were at play at that time, the application of the law, on the part of these remarkable lawyers was far-reaching. Um, and this is something that I think needs to be told in relation to the international criminal law timeline. You know, I mean, genocide was not yet an official crime, and there they were applying a legal principle related to the prosecution of genocide. Okay, so,
1: so what you've said is that there were gaps in the legal timeline and part of your research is addressing those gaps so what I'm wondering is when you talk about your research as being indisputably interdisciplinary what what you mean about in that respect?
5: Sure so I don't think that law works in a vacuum Um, I think that it's important to appreciate that we you know that law is all around us and as a social legal scholar, I see the um, law within the wider context of social culture, cultural rather and and political factors at play. And that I think is an important tool that, you know, um, many lawyers use in order to reach out to extra legal factors, if we can say, in order then to analyze how the law works in practice and how it's interpreted and applied
1: and i suppose if you're looking at photographs as well you're bringing in another
5: dimension
1: there so so why why photographs in particular
5: oh because they're so wonderful especially from that time period but you know yeah i mean so in my work i argue that photographs are an important data source of data so it's a they complement legal sources Um, Photographs can be read like documents. We know this as lawyers um, in terms of evidence, for example. There's a visual literacy, if I can say, that informs a broader understanding about law, about uh, legal principles. Another way to look at it is like a family album. We read our family album and life accounts. I think that also for, let's say, in this respect, international criminal law, there's a legal album and that we can read these legal biographical accounts um, that are um, relevant to the law. Also have a very difficult personal dimension because the cases I'm dealing with are dealing with the Holocaust, genocide and mass atrocities. So these are very important testimonies and accounts that work in a variety of different levels and just shows us how rich law is.
1: And I suppose, I'm just thinking whilst you're speaking that photographs speak a universal language, don't they? And yeah. you, you, you know, they, they themselves are quite indisputable, although mm. the way they are read and interpreted will probably vary significantly depending upon who it is that's looking at a particular yeah.
5: photograph.
1: It's fascinating. So- Thank you. You're investigating the, the life accounts of, of particular lawyers. Are you are you going to continue this sort of approach to your research and, and look at other life accounts in the future?
5: Um, I'd like to. I don't see myself being deterred from this mission. Um, in particular, just talking about Zofia Nowkowska, it made me think about other the role of other female members of the legal teams. Um, and this fits in quite nicely with an ongoing discussion about Nuremberg. And also this could go more widely in relation to other domestic legal teams that were preparing their own war crimes trials at the same time that Poland was. So I'd like to create sort of like a set of questions that I can take with me and, you know, have a look in terms of, you know, other case, relevant case studies. Okay. So watch this space. Thank you. So I'm I'm going to move now to
1: Mercedes because thinking about photographs as this sort of visual stimulus, um, I always think about the ocean as something that I prefer to look at rather than being. Um, so I think of that visually. So Mercedes, I'm just I'm just going to come to you if that's okay. And you you talk about you talk about the ocean as a, a site of mystery and beauty, but also of great threat, and I think I can relate to that, and and of quite, uh, you know, and of violence, and I'm just wondering how these factors influence your research and your motivation.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, thanks, Lisa. Um, so the ocean is this huge, great scenario in which I think the problematic relationship that we as human beings have with the natural resources of our planet and is played out on a daily basis. Um, It is in many ways a scenario of unfolding drama and this makes it for me very interesting and also very poignant. Um, Like you say, the sea can be frightening and ruthless, but it is also fragile. Um, It is vulnerable to climate change, pollution, and it's also vulnerable to fishing. Fishing is by nature um, an activity that aims to remove marine life for the benefit of humans. Um, but fishing is also challenging for people. People can live for months or even years on board of a distant water fishing vessel without ever seeing land. Mm-hmm. So,
1: can can I just ask you, Mercedes? Around the because oh, your work, you're looking at unregulated fishing and I'm just wondering if you can explain sort of what, what the dangers of unregulated fishing are.
3: So um although the ocean is not entirely a lawless space, it is true that the legal frameworks that exist are in many ways inadequate. Um, The concepts and structures that support those legal frameworks are often clumsy and lacking in effectiveness. And because of this, a significant part of the fishing activity that takes place in the high seas, which is the more remote and distant part of the ocean, is understood as unregulated. And what this means is that it is often not possible to identify clearly defined and binding rules and standards that determine how legal principles are to be interpreted and how broad legal duties are to be applied. And as a consequence, it can be difficult to determine whether breaches take place and what the consequences should be for those breaches. Um, The lack of standards uh, essentially translates into a lack of accountability. This situation can result in wrongs and often the law is blamed for this. But for me, one has to be really careful because the law is a living thing that has to be nurtured, especially if it needs to grow in a challenging environment such as the ocean. Uh, My book is about unregulated fishing, but it is also about how we develop the law of the sea and nurture its strengths and its effectiveness. And um, it's about the power of human beings to make things better and the opportunities and options that we have to protect ocean life, whilst at the same time nurturing another very valuable human resource, which is the law.
1: And it's interesting what you're saying there then about unregulated fishing and, and the sight of that being quite Distant, you know, geographically and physically distant, right. and and I also wonder whether you know this the ocean can seem quite distant to many of us. Uh, no, you know, now more than ever, particularly people that don't don't live by the coast and we're we're not able to travel around. And I'm just wondering how you connect people to your research, and and if you've got any sort of particular sort of hopes or or focuses. For the future?
3: Yeah so my, my hope for the future mainly is to make a contribution through my research to improving the legal and the regulatory frameworks of the ocean so that we get closer to ensuring sustainable fishing um, and, and I understand that from land and especially from a landlocked city like Leeds the ocean can seem very distant and indeed irrelevant but I have to say the ocean is not irrelevant and it is very important to all of us, for all of our lives. Um, The ocean and its resources provide food and work security for millions around the world and have a key role in regulating our climate and therefore our well-being. Um, And whenever any of us buys fish or takes a trip to the sea, we should do so with care because the sea, for all its mystery and danger, ultimately looks after us all.
0: Located in one of the UK's largest legal hubs, Leeds Law School is the perfect place to maximise practical experience and available employment opportunities. A law degree is demanding, but it can be extremely rewarding. And as a law student, you will learn transferable skills that can open countless doors in your career journey. We offer undergraduate courses like the LLB that have the option to combine law with other subjects, including Criminology, Business or Finance, and postgraduate courses including the Graduate Diploma in Law, LLM in Legal Practice and our LLM in International Business Law. So, whether you're already set to work in the legal profession, looking to change direction, or just keen to challenge yourself, discover more by visiting our website at leedsbeckitt.ac.uk forward slash law.
1: So I'm just going to pick up from what Mercedes was saying there about the ocean and how it takes care of us all. And just come to you, Anna, because your your book and your work is about problem-solving courts and your research relates to therapeutic jurisprudence. And I'm just wondering about those concepts. And if you could tell us a little bit, what are problem-solving courts? What is therapeutic jurisprudence?
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had those those same questions a few years ago when I started my research. They're quite um, kind of an interesting um, concepts, I suppose. Um, but problem-solving courts are basically an umbrella term that refers to any specialist court that cater for the specialised and specific needs of an offender. So for instance we've got domestic violence courts or veteran courts or mental health courts or female only courts and these specialist courts as I said kind of look after the specific needs of that that given offender. Um, And so really the most most widely known and pioneering example of the the problem solving court is the the drug court model. And as you've probably kind of gathered, that court specialises in offenders whose uh, crime is fueled by drug addiction. Mm-hmm. So the first of these courts were established back in the 1980s in Miami and in, in the United States. So there's very much an international kind of context to the, the drug courts. And th- the reason for this was really because the war on drugs had resulted in a quite serious crack cocaine ad- uh, epidemic. And the revolving door phenomena was taking place and overburdening the uh, criminal justice system at that time so the research had started to evidence the close link between drug use and repeat offending that that kind of body of research was beginning to emerge and based on that policymakers were therefore motivated to consider the existing repressive reactions to drug using offenders so such as Uh, prisons and the traditional court route. So the the Miami Drug Court was just an experiment really, and it aimed to yoke together treatment and criminal justice, and the drug court would become a pathfinder to long term change by tackling underlying addictive behaviors. Uh, This would therefore free up the mainstream criminal justice system by enabling uh, long term rehabilitation for offenders. So, They problem solving courts represent quite a significant departure away from mainstream jurisprudence um, by recognizing that drug addiction is an addictive disorder and punishment fails to or traditional punishment methods fail to address the root causes of illicit behaviors or drug using behaviors so the the problem solving court movement as I've just explained really evolved without any particular philosophical Um, underpinning in mind um, but because it it took off very uh, kind of rapid and organic growth it then required a framework to justify and support its radical departure away from the traditional court process so it soon started to become um, affiliated with the the TJ movement. So sorry just to
1: remind everyone so when, when we're talking about TJ we're talking about this concept of therapeutic
4: jurisprudence yeah uh, so yes yeah, so the the tj literature or the therapeutic jurisprudence literature has examined how the law can be applied in a way that enhances emotional and rehabilitative and restorative outcomes so because problem solving courts became these therapeutic vehicles that helped facilitate service user recovery the shared vision between TJ and the problem-solving court movement meant that they kind of um, they kind of linked up, and TJ became that that philosophical framework that problem-solving courts um, began to adhere to.
1: That's a wonderfully clear explanation, thanks, Anna. So I'm I'm just wondering what prompted you then to start research in researching in this particular area.
4: Well, I'm not going to lie, in many ways, I did fall into it back in 2015. So back then, my PhD supervisor alerted me to the TJ literature. And naturally, upon reading that, I discovered the problem solving court literature. Um, But as a UK researcher, what baffled me was this huge discrepancy between the international and national drug courts, I noticed that there'd been loads of attention given to the international drug courts with research suggesting that the outcomes were really strong, particularly across primary outcome delivery, like reducing repeat offending and enhancing drug recovery. But the English and Welsh drug courts, I noticed, had lagged far behind and they seemed to have faced formidable challenges from what I could see and observe. So. One thing that struck me really was the lack of British literature in the area, Um, but I noticed that from the research that was available, six drug courts were alive, and they seemed to be well, in 2011 when the latest research report was published, and by the time I started doing my research, that, that report was already outdated. Since that 2011 report, there was not really anything that was said on the British Drug Court, so we didn't really know if they were still in existence, we didn't know what happened to them, but what I, what I did see that was a series of newspaper articles that had documented that they had informally closed down, but we didn't really know much more than this, and there hadn't been any proper justification from the Ministry of Justice. So I began to ring around these six pilot sites to hear more and I wasn't really left with anything very conclusive. So um, I was particularly kind of fascinated by this, I suppose, because of the the success that had been um, bestowed by the international uh, jurisdictions. So I, I kind of managed to work out really that there was two left of the six, and I took it upon myself to therefore go and have a visit of these courts. And my bafflement of the area just kind of increased at that point because they presented themselves so differently to how I'd read the international drug courts um, presented themselves um, in the literature. So I, I was visiting these two courts and during that, that time, that kind of initial field work, field work one of those uh, closed down, which I think is quite telling of the, the kind of history in the field. And I was left with just one. So that became the object of my book and doctoral work and I had quite a lot of questions that I wanted to answer that formed, became research questions. So um, I knew that drug courts were once in existence in England and Wales but now they'd fallen by the wayside. Why? Uh, Manchester Review Court was still uh, still alive. It seemed to be going okay but we didn't really know how okay, how well and I was just kind of really interested in what had happened to the British drug courts um, and you know what why they'd had such a checkered history in the field really so that's how I fell into it
1: (laughs) yeah goodness it's 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 amazing how how these things come to bear isn't it and uh thinking back again then to you know Agatha's discovery of of one photograph and your sort of you know questions driving you and how we come upon our research agendas and how that then sets the tone for for what we're going to be looking at and and how important and vital that is and yet if you hadn't stumbled across this you know who who would be looking at it and really briefly Anna just you know what what conclusions have you been reaching in your research?
4: Uh, well, just in a nutshell, then, the empirical, anal- the, the empirical data analysis involved a comparison of the courts and the extent to which they adhered to the international blueprint, which is the 10 key components of drug courts. And I found that all there was a lack of fidelity to all 10 of these key components. So I concluded that although in theory, policymakers advocated the implementation of drug courts in 2005, they didn't ever fully buy into the model, and they had kind of made this qualified attempt at successful delivery. So there had been these long-standing jurisdictional problems at grassroots level with the courts, um, and you know this was the reason that I gave um, that I concluded that they had uh, that was the reason that they had failed essentially.
1: So lots of lots of prospects for the future. Brilliant. I will look forward to your your book and reading that. Um, so Sosha, sat Hi. patiently hello
2: <laughs> quietly for once.
1: <laughs> um, so Sosha, you've very recently secured a book deal, haven't you? and I, and I'm just wondering what what is it that you're planning to explore specifically in that piece of work?
2: Yeah, so um, I did just before Christmas, I got the call and it it set me up for Christmas and I had a great Christmas after that celebrating. But yeah, I'm looking at the treatment of incapacitated rape complainants and sexual assault complainants and their treatment in law and society and how the law responds to different complainants in different ways. Um, And basically, in essence, what I do is I argue that the law is in fact inadequate as it um, is hierarchical. Uh, In other words, it depends on how much you are to blame for what you did and what happened to you and how the law responds. Uh, And in essence, what I do is I argue that the the theoretical foundations, namely the autonomy-based framework, is at the root of the problem. Um, So the book is going to go deeper than what some other... um, uh, academics might have done previously by criticising the law, suggesting a new definition of consent or capacity, whatever it might be, and go deeper and dig underneath and see what the foundations are and see if they really are the root of the problem here. And so looking at this autonomy framework and seeing if that is the problem.
1: So you've said those two words a couple of times now, autonomy framework. Mm. Uh, what, What do you mean by that? Why is it
2: so, relevant? So what, it, what I mean by that is this idea of liberal, legal, autonomous individual. You might have heard that. Some academics will have heard those terms or just liberal, um, autonomous individual. And breaking that down into plain English is this notion or this idea that individuals are free, capable, independent. This idea that you're either can or you can't, you're capable or you're incapable if you don't want to have sex just say no you know just don't walk home alone and you'll be fine just tell the person you don't want anything to do with them and it's okay and everything will be fine but of course that is it's problematic because it's unrealistic we're inherently dependent in our nature in our relationships we're dependent on everyone so it's problematic because it's misleading it is it creates binaries and groups and others people if you don't fall into this kind of of ideal of what we think a human should be or how someone should act. Uh, it creates expectations and how you should respond in different situations and that therefore influences and creates stereotypes and myths um, and these different expectations of, you know, don't walk home alone, don't wear a short skirt, don't get too drunk, careful who you talk to, careful you send a nude picture of yourself to, all these things. So it creates this ideal victim and an ideal response. Uh, and that, of course, is problematic because what happens is if we're based the law on this same liberal legal autonomous framework. And we keep reforming the law based on this same liberal legal autonomous framework nothing will change because it's just dressing something up in more clothes and then oh that doesn't look good let's put something else on and it's still the same outcome so in essence that is why it is problematic it's misleading and it creates these implications for for society then as well and how we respond both in law and in society
1: okay so you've identified the problematic what what's what's your alternative is there one
2: Oh, what's the answer? What's the yeah, yeah, what? an answer? Well, tell me the answer. Tell me the answer now. Well, that was what I was struggling with for quite a long time, actually. Um, well, not that. Well, at the very start of my PhD, um, I was having all you know, as you do when you go through your PhD, you have all your meetings, and you say, "Well, what's the problem?" Well, oh, you've identified the problem. Well, what is your unique answer? And I stumbled across the theory of vulnerability. Uh, I really did, genuinely stumbled a bit, like Anna. But I was sitting in my old kitchen. I can Still see the moment, sit in my kitchen and I found this theory of vulnerability because I kept saying this is what's wrong and I identified all the problems, but I couldn't say why and it was because of this and this idea of vulnerability is based on Martha Feynman. Um, as some of you may have heard of before her theory of vulnerability and what it does is it's not this traditional understanding of what it, of being vulnerable. It is um, Embracing our vulnerability, understanding that because of who we are, we as humans, we are vulnerable because of our fleshiness, because of our, um, our humanness, because of our dependency. We are vulnerable creatures. So we rely on others and we rely heavily on the state to um, respond to that vulnerability. But because we create this idea of the individual as being capable, the state says, not my problem. Make sure you take care of yourself because you're so free and capable. But if we twist that on its head and we say, well, actually, we are all we all accept we're all vulnerable. We need the state for source resources, education, finance, health care. The list goes on and on. So what I'm saying is we, we change our perspective, we embrace our vulnerability, and then we reshape and rethink how the law would respond if it was to acknowledge that and how we would go about that in, in essence. And we demand a state that is responsible rather than passing, passing the book. But, you know, um, as I mentioned before about the everyone being vulnerable, you know, just a very, very brief example. You, we listened to Agatha. They talking about war and we're all vulnerable to being hit by a a massive war could break out any day and we could all be in a different position that we are in now or you know Anna spoke about drug addiction or alcohol addiction and how that can affect anyone, it can hit any person at any time and of course environmental factors that uh, Mercedes talked about as well and how and and accepting that and embracing that vulnerability really does change our perspective, it changes our expectations then of individuals as well and it also asks us to reimagine sexual uh, relations because if you accept that people are vulnerable and open to exploitation that completely changes your mindset and it doesn't it moves us away from responsabilizing people to avoid harm and shifts that. But like Agatha said, the law in itself is not not enough. It it is one one cog in a big wheel and we need to change our societal perspectives too in order to get as much as we possibly can from the law um, and to make sure we can make effective change in in any area of law, but in particular in my area of research when I'm discussing uh, sexual offences and um, rape and sexual assault. Thank you, Saoirse. So
1: I think that's that, again, I keep using this word fascinating, but listening to each of you talking about your research areas. And, and I think you just captured it really neatly there as well, Sosia. You know, although these are really diverse areas that you're all writing about and researching and publishing, there is there is that connection and the law is a dynamic living concept beast and we constantly strive to identify and question and reframe and remake and this is why the work that you amazing women are doing is so important so thank you now just indulge me for a moment before we come to a close and i'm really interested to know what the messages are on your women's tea, because we are celebrating uh, women in this podcast. And I'm just wondering what message So, uh, Agatha, what does yours say?
5: So, my message is beautiful uh, let us be kind and compassionate to remove the sadness of the world. Oh, wow
1: gosh do you know I've not heard that one I've drunk a lot of this yogi tea in my time and I've not come across that one um Anna Uh,
4: my message is an attitude of gratitude brings opportunities how lovely is that (laughs) (laughs) thank you for the tea Louisa oh you're very welcome
1: has anyone actually tried it yet I don't know if you actually like it yeah it's lovely it's quite spicy
2: isn't it um Sorsha, what does what's your message um, communicate sacredness. Build it, share it, and spread it. Mm. Now. Mm. You sound a little <laughs> bit unsure about that, I, I'm a bit unsure of it, but well. I'm not really sure what it's trying to me to do. <laughs> well, we, can, we can ponder over that. Mercedes, <laughs> well, <laughs> Mercedes well, what I, about you?
3: Uh, mine says, you are equally as beautiful as the universe.
2: Oh, Oh. Well, Fabulous! Wow. Is, Imagine
4: it, it's Yeah, <laughs> it's fitting that one. Very fitting.
2: I was going to do
1: a poem, wasn't I? Yes, yes. poem, poem. I'm going to. I'll finish poem, with this poem, poem and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. And I think the, re- mm. the reason I wanted to do a poem was just so that you know, I'm, I'm sharing something with with you for you shared a lot with me today and this is a poem that I wrote in 2017 and we were well it well you'll tell from the poem probably the time time of year but a little bit further on getting a bit closer to spring and it's all about new beginnings and I think you know celebrating our research and being a woman in at this point in time, in the 21st century, is, is something to um, both cherish, but also fight for. So it's called Green. The leaves on the vivid green trees are lush, cupping pregnant buds about to burst their colour forth for us. The world is transformed overnight as the blossom presents itself. Boasting in its own delight. And I have been in this new life for two springs now, but was blind last year to this beauty, able only to see my inner world. But with that turmoil subsided, it's by the seasons now that my mood is guided.
2: Oh, that's fabulous. Oh, wow, thank you, Louisa.
1: Oh, it's, nice. it's lovely.
2: Thank you. It's
1: brilliant. Yeah, thanks, everyone. And I, uh, you know, hope you enjoy your women's tea. Thanks for sharing with me today some insights into your research. Good luck with the books, with writing the books, with selling the books, with thinking about the next book. Um, And yeah, I'll look forward to seeing you all in person hopefully very soon yeah
5: thank you you for having us thank Thank you you. thank you louisa thanks a lot for this thank you you're all lovely it was lovely to see you
3: (laughs) you too the beckett talk podcasts are released every tuesday so don't forget to check our social media channels on instagram twitter or facebook to find out more details on our next episode see you next week